two weeks, I think it was two weeks in inpatient rehab before they let me out of the hospital. And one of the things they kept pounding into me was that you need to figure out how you're going to handle this when you get home. You need to figure out that you've got tools. Figure out your tools. So Tim and Garrett are <laughs> tools. <laughs> and it may take both of you once I hit the deck. So, <laughs> And it happens really quickly. <laughs> Is this going to work? Okay. Um, I am very blessed and grateful to be in this place this morning. And to have the opportunity to preach uh, is a special blessing because I think what God has laid on my heart um, is going to speak to a bunch of us, I hope. So... Let me take out my notes. I look at this congregation. No, it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. It's within reach, so. You know, I look at this congregation, and I see that in this group of people, there are represented a bunch of people who have real needs, whether they be financial, physical, relational, even grief could be a part of what's going on in this congregation. And it's my prayer that the passage of Scripture that I'm going to use this morning would speak directly into those needs. So we would you pray with me as we get started? Father, there is absolutely no man capable of rightly, completely expositing the Word of God. So, Father, I pray that you would help me this morning to open up, even if it's just a crack, of what you have intended for this group of people to hear this morning. So God, be with me and strengthen me. Use me as your conduit to speak to this group of people. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the other things I found out is that they kept pouring drugs into me to keep managing the pain. And I found out that the drugs make my mouth go dry really a lot. So, bottoms up. <laughs> All right, if you would turn to the book of Philippians. Wow, I've got 40 minutes. <laughs> okay, this book of Philippians was written by Paul... Um, he was in prison at the time that he wrote this. Many have suggested that the book of Philippians was written while he was a prisoner in Rome. Some recent scholars have suggested that maybe it was Ephesus. I don't think it really matters at this point for our discussion. 
But he wrote it to a church that he had established on his second missionary journey in about A.D. 50. And he is writing this letter about 10 years later. And when he established this church, he didn't spend as much time as he had anticipated, I am sure, because he was run out of town. If you go to the book of Acts in chapter 16, it, it, it opens up what happened in Philippi. When he showed up, he, started, he went down to the river. There was no synagogue in Philippi because it was a smaller group of Jewish people. So he went down to the river where he thought he would find people that were praying. And sure enough, he found people that were praying. And he found Lydia and another group of women that were down there. She accepted the word of God presented by Paul, and she became a believer. She invited this motley group of itinerant preachers to stay at her place. So they stayed at her place. And then Paul went into town every day preaching. And pretty soon, a slave girl was following behind who had the gift of telling the future. And she kept telling everybody, listen to this guy, because he has the word of God that will help get you saved. Well, she was making a lot of money for her masters because she could tell the future. Pretty soon, Paul had enough of that. And one of these days, he turned around and looked at her and said, He told the demon to come out of her, and the demon came out out of her, and her ability to tell the future just went away. And so did the money for the people that were using her as their ticket to whatever. So those people grabbed Paul and Silas, dragged them into the authorities, and said, these people are not doing things that are, that are right. They're not doing things that are uh, Roman customs. And pretty soon, the officials of that town had Paul and Silas beaten with wooden rods and then had them put in prison for I don't know what was going to happen the next day. But Paul and Silas, that night in the jail, are starting to sing and praise God. And the next thing you know, there's an earthquake All of the cells open up. The chains fall off of the prisoners. The jailer is standing there thinking everybody's going to make a break for it. I'm dead anyway. So he pulls his sword to take his own life. And Paul says, don't do it. We're all still here. So that night, the jailer got saved and his family. The next morning, the officials came and wanted to know what happened to Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas said, you beat us without cause. We are Roman citizens. The officials became just fearful that somehow or another the Roman law would come down on them. So they ushered Paul and Silas out of town. So Paul and Silas did not have the opportunity to spend the time with the Philippian church like he did in so many other places. And there is conjecture that they left Luke behind at this church to sort of guide it 
and get it set up. So 10 years later, Paul is writing this letter to this Philippian church while he is in prison. Okay? This book is often called the book of joy. Never once in this letter does Paul correct a practice of this church that he has had a report on that this church is in the wrong some way or another. He never once corrects anything that the Philippians have been doing in church. It is nothing more than a string of encouragements, a reminder to live a life that, is, that proves your salvation. Don't you just love some of these? I, the uh, chapter 2 At verse 5, it says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then he goes through that that list of things that Jesus didn't claim as his own and says, this is the same attitude that you should have. And then at the end, in verse 9, it says, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wouldn't that be an encouragement to you if you were living in a place where you are being persecuted for being a believer? That at one point, every knee is going to bow to this Jesus Christ, and every tongue confess that he is the Lord. Wouldn't that encourage you? If you were in a place where you were being persecuted. And then look at verse 13 in chapter 2. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Isn't that encouraging? That right now God is working in you to live out the life that he wants you to live. (laughs) Encouragement? Chapter 3, verse 12. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. (laughs) Even Paul's not there? Even Paul is not there. Is that an encouragement? Is that an encouragement for us this morning? Oh, you guys are already all perfect? (laughs) Isn't it an encouragement for those of us who wonder if we are living this godly life, if we're going to reach the mark or we're not going to reach the mark? Isn't this encouraging that even Paul struggled with it. 
just a whole letter, a string of encouragements, an encouragement to follow me as I follow Christ. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to read these, this passage until I get to the, oh, the guest speaker, <laughs> until I get to my text. All right, chapter 4, verse 1. I am reading out of the New Living Translation, if any of you were wondering. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. How we love these people. Now I appeal to Iodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. In all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. And now, this is the passage that I wanted to exposit as much as I can. Verse 10. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. And beginning at verse 15, Paul goes, goes back and it reiterates how this church has helped him in the past, where they have given him financial help, whatever kind of help he might need, whatever help they can provide. But for a time, this church had no idea how to get a hold of Paul. They didn't know where he was. There were shipwrecks. There were imprisonments. There were traveling all over the Mediterranean area. And they didn't know how to get stuff to Paul. But at this point, they found out he was in jail, and they sent a gift to him through Epaphroditus. And then verse 11 in the NLT starts, not that I was ever in need. 
We don't know what kind of prison he was in at this point. It may have been a really bad prison. But he says, I was never in need. They sent him a gift. And he said, I was never in need. Now, the prisons that Paul might have been in are nothing like the prisons we know about today. There are parts of the world where people that are imprisoned have to bring, have to figure out a way to get their own food, to get people to bring them food, uh, whatever kinds of needs he might have. It was not going to be provided by the jail. Maybe Paul was in that place. And yet he says, not that I was ever in need. Let that sink in a little bit. Think about your own position. Are there there things that you're thinking about that you thought about last night, that you thought about Wednesday, that you needed? Paul says, I was never in need. And then continuing on verse 11, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. There are people in this room, Tim had to learn how to be an occupational therapist. He had to learn how to do it. Mitch had to learn how to build things, how to make sure they didn't fall down. He had to learn that. Dennis had to learn how to put electronic stuff together. I can't think of anything more boring Dennis had to learn how to build stuff with bricks. I, I could see where that would be kind of fun. That would, to me, that would be interesting. I learned how to be an accountant. Boring. <laughs> but that means more work for me. If you guys don't want to do it, I get to do it. So, have you learned to be content? Are you content? Has that, is that something you could actually say about yourself? That you're content? Let's, uh, I'm going to go here first. First uh, Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, verse 6.
Verse 6. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. And I looked up the definitions in Vine's dictionary to try to get more of a godly definition of something like godliness. Never wondered exactly what godliness means. Is it something that you just, by nature, you could figure that out? Have you wondered how it would be defined? And according to Vines, godliness is to be devout. Denotes that kind of piety which, characterized by a Godward attitude, does that which is well-pleasing to him. Let me read that again. Godliness is to be devout. It denotes that kind of piety which, characterized by a Godward attitude, does that which is well-pleasing to him. Does that describe your life? Are you thinking about everything that you do and wondering, is this well-pleasing to God? Contentment, contentment, to be sufficient, to be possessed of sufficient strength, to be strong, to be enough for a thing. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Paul is in prison. He says, I didn't have a need. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I, verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation. I'm in, back in Philippians, I'm sorry. Chapter 4, verse 12. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. Contentment. I, ha- I am sufficient. Everything I need is there. So then you have to define what are your needs. And back in Timothy it says, so if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Have you looked at your closet lately? Got enough clothes? I looked at mine the other day and it was like, I don't need 40 shirts. 
I don't need that many pairs of pants. I've got, for a man, I've got six pairs of shoes. <laughs> Is that enough? And it all goes back to this idea of whether or not we have learned to be content. Now, in the days that Paul was writing this, there was a teaching that was going around about Stoicism. And it taught, let me read this, which taught a person should live passively and accept whatever circumstances came their way. There was nothing they could do about the circumstances anyway, so just suck it up, buttercup. You can do it. So they were, they were teaching that whatever your circumstances were, you had no control over it, so just accept it without trying to do anything about it. Just suck it up, buttercup, because you've got what you need within you to manage this. But then, Philippians 4.13 blows that out of the water for a believer. And the NLT translation says, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul makes it clear that his ability to handle the situation that he is in right now in a jail, saying, I don't have a need, but somebody sent him something to supply a need. And he said, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself. And he says in verse 13 that I do this through Christ who gives me the strength. Now, those needs that I talked about, physical, financial, grief even, that this congregation may be facing, are you facing it through the strength of Christ? Are you accepting the circumstances and just saying, oh, woe is me? Or are you saying that I can handle this through Christ? This leads to another point about Paul. He is a man who has been given a thorn in his flesh to keep him from being conceited. Here's a man who has laid his hands on other people and prayed for them and seen them healed. And yet he goes to Jesus himself and says, would you heal me of this? Three times. And three times it's denied. Paul sitting in a jail 
with a thorn in his flesh, maybe having to depend on friends to bring him food and clothing for whatever the season may be. And yet he says, I don't have a need. I have learned to be content. Now, last Wednesday evening, we talked about living according to the commands and decrees of God and contrasted the action of Joseph's brothers and Joseph. It's obvious whose integrity was intact as far as we have gone in Genesis. Joseph followed the decrees and commands of his God. Joseph's brothers? Can we say that Joseph's brothers followed the decrees and commands of their God? I mean, they were going to kill their brother. So I wonder where our integrity is in following the decrees and commands. I know my integrity has been compromised at times in my life by the way I behaved, with the thoughts I was entertaining, with the programs I have been watching. And I'm sure it's true of every one of us that somewhere along the line, our integrity has been compromised as we live out this life. But I am challenging us this morning about our integrity as we live out this life, this life of godliness, a devout life, looking to live our life in such a way that what we do pleases Him. I have come to a point now with this leg. I've had lots of time to think about it. I spent two weeks in that inpatient rehab. Uh, the first morning I woke up after the first surgery. The surgery was done in two, two steps. And woke up the next morning and they said, you have to get up and move around. So they got me out of bed. They put a belt around me. A guy about the size of John was right there, the physical therapist. And I got up, got up on my right leg, and then I walked and put my weight on the left leg. And thank goodness he was there because I was going to the floor. And ever since then, this leg has been nothing but a drag. It is absolutely useless to me at this point. And in all of that time that I was in inpatient rehab, I was getting three to three and a half hours every day of either physical therapy or occupational therapy. That occupational therapist, no James, he harped and harped and harped. You got to figure out how to do this when you get home. And 
I needed help to go to the bathroom. So I would ring the bell and either the nurse or the CNA would come in, help me to the bathroom. I would sit on the edge of the bed and I'd say, I can't lift this leg, I can't, can you help me? And they were always gracious enough to help me get my leg back up in the bed. In about three days before I was to be discharged, I asked the nurse, could you help me? She looked at me and said, I'm not going home with you. <laughs> you got to figure this out. So they showed me a little technique, and sure enough, I can do that now. But I had lots of time to think. And thinking about this passage, I have come to the point where if this is to be my life from this point forward, I'm okay with that. Because I believe in the sovereignty of God. My surgeon told me, he came in one day to check on me, and he said, I've done dozens of these surgeries and never had this outcome. My right leg is what got me into surgery. It was aching. It was hurting. I couldn't put, it, was, it, didn't, it had no endurance whatsoever. This right leg is so good now. It's perfect. Somehow the left leg is not. And by the grace of God, believing in the sovereignty of God, this surgeon has never had this outcome. God chose me to have this outcome. And I'm okay with it if this is the way it goes the rest of my life. It's not what I had envisioned. I, was envi I have envisioned going with John every October, hiking up his property and looking for deers that aren't there. <laughs> but to God be the glory. This is something that somehow is going to bring God great glory. And I would trust and I pray that that would be the thinking of everyone in this congregation in whatever circumstance you find yourself. That you would trust God for the outcome, no matter what it is. And that you would learn to be content in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful.